new neurons have been discovered that can generate fever and illness in the brain. Want to learn more about them and how they were discovered? Then listen in to the latest podcast episode. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Jessica Osterhout, a researcher in the laboratory of Professor Catherine Dulloch at Harvard University. They study neurons involved in social behaviour. Dr. Jessica studies neurons involved in a fever and illness in particular. Hi, Jessica. Nice to have you on the podcast. Could you tell me a little bit more about yourself? My name is Jessica Osterhout. I'm a postdoc or a senior postdoc, I guess, in Catherine Dulac's lab at Harvard University. Um, and, and the lab in general studies uh, the neural basis of behavior. So the lab is quite famous for uh, identifying neurons in the brain that are important for parenting behavior, but there's people in the lab that work at all types of social behavior. But my work is a little bit different in the lab. I study how sickness behaviors arise. And so my work, you know, is, is kind of, like I said, it's sort of a senior postdoc and I'm um, finishing up some of this work and moving on to my own lab at the University of Utah in the fall. And what exactly got you interested in um, research into sickness behavior and then yeah. the neurons involved did you did you always think oh this is the area I'm interested in this is what I work towards or was it kind of a roundabout way right yeah so I came to Catherine's lab really interested in how the our internal environments alter behavior my favorite mm-hmm. example is like feeling hangry right when yeah. you're hungry but all of a sudden your mood is totally different right this happens mm-hmm. we can you know see this in people all the time so clearly our internal environment or maybe the lack of nutrients can change how we behave mm-hmm. and so that's the kind of the big question I was really interested in and coming to Catherine's lab I wanted to then look at some of those behaviors that she had looked at before including social behaviors etc to try to understand this. And at the same time, it was a really uh, an awesome coincidence. Jim Simons from the Simons Foundation had approached Catherine. Simons Foundation studies autism in humans. Their goal is to try to understand and treat autism. And so he had come to Catherine, told her about this phenomena that happens in children, at least. Well, we now know it happens in adults as well, where during um, sickness or what they called during a fever, febrile episode, children would experience an abatement of their symptoms. They, these autistic patients, which normally have, you know, certain sets of of, uh, behavioral patterns, all of a sudden seemed a little bit more neurotypical, had more social contact, more eye contact, more social interactions. And actually Jim Simon's daughter was one of these kids and she actually knew she had a fever because she would start using more language. So it's quite striking. And now there's been several more studies, large scale studies that find about 20% of autistic patients have this phenomenon where during some sort of infection, when they have a fever, they are almost more for the short term. And then they go back because that fever is over. So what this said to me as I, when I heard this story was that there's something about the immune reaction that's happening during an infection that's altering normal circuits in the brain. And so then I got into reading and trying to understand what we knew about how the immune system affects the brain, how the immune system affects behavior. We really, it turns out, knew very little. We really didn't know how those immune signals got to the brain. We didn't know what circuits were activated by them or even how sickness behaviors arise to begin with. Although sickness behaviors in general are really well characterized, you know, there's a sort of standard list and they often happen all together and often happen with this in animals. They happen during any kind of infection. We really have no idea at the time how those occur. And so that's what's got me thinking about, you know, this internal environment and how it affects neurosurgery. I'm wondering, do you have like a hypothesis of what caused the people to act more neurotypically? thought that popped in my mind, could it be something to do with somehow in terms of the immune response causes the electrical activity to become less dysfunctional because your body doesn't have the kind of resources to put into doing the extra activity that might be called lead to non-neurotypical behaviors and then because of that the person's able to continue doing things in a neurotypical way because and this is true for some autistic patients right where they're very hyperactive mm-hmm. a lot of their like extra behaviors are at high activity level and so perhaps um, there's sort of a depression in those activity levels that comes with having an infection and maybe this is true as far as social behavior goes we do have a hypothesis and we think actually it's because specific neural circuits are being specifically activated. So that is to say that in at least some populations of autistic patients, perhaps there is a link between direct neural circuit activity and altered social behavior patterns. But then we still can't explain things like 
reduced hyperactivity or reduced disruptive behaviors and things like that. And it also probably has, we really don't know any sort of link between, you know, their sensory perceptions, which we also know in many autistic kids Mm. is highly altered. And so whether infection affects those as well. The thing with autism, right, is that there's many genetic or unknown reasons why a kid has autism and it can present in many different ways. So, and going back to the fever effect in humans, we know that it's only 20% have this effect, right? So likely it's going to affect, you know, have a varying level of effectiveness on different brain circuits. But we are actively studying in the lab now how social circuits are affected by acute information. And which brain regions are normally involved with social circuits? Do we know? Yes, our lab knows a lot about this. And particularly the hypothalamus is heavily involved, as well as the amygdala. There's connections between the hypothalamus, the amygdala, parts of the cortex, and those sort of circuits are likely heavily involved. And regarding the research you're doing now, what sort of techniques do you use? And are the techniques you're using, we use these techniques for a long amount of time, or are the mm-hmm. techniques that are quite new? So when I first joined the lab, I had no experience in a lot of these techniques, but I use things like chemogenetics, or yeah. which is very similar to optogenetics, except for we're activating neurons very, very specifically through this artificial receptor that only responds to a small molecule that we inject into the mouse. So we can temporarily control the activity, mm-hmm. similar to optogenetics, which uses light. So I use chemogenetic combined with particular Cree lines to manipulate the activity of certain neurons. Um, I also use tracing techniques. So we use a virus to infect neurons, both for the chemogenetics, but also to trace their axons or their inputs, those sorts of circuit strategies. And then more recently, I've started using things like um, sequencing techniques to look at composition of each individual cell. So I use single cell sequencing as well as spatial transcriptomics, which allows us to get a sense of the transcriptome. So a certain number of RNAs that in situ to only get a sense of what the cell is expressing, but also where the location of the cell is. Yeah. That's important because yeah, a cell might be expressing it, but where exactly it's expressing it, which neurons yes. and where even more important is where in that neuron, because sometimes the cell can be expressing RNA for certain protein, but that doesn't mean it's actually using. Exactly. And in certain areas of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, this is really critical, actually, because mm-hmm. there's really it's like organization of some cell types, you know, that their pattern of, of localization is really has a lot to, of, to do with their function. And, mm-hmm. you know, who they're next to and things like that really matters a lot. So this new technique that's come out in, you know, probably the last three years or so is really mm-hmm. transformed the way we look at cell types and their function in the hypothalamus in particular. And moving on to the paper, could you briefly summarize the paper? Based on this fever effect in autistic patients, the first goal was to try to understand how fever was generated because perhaps it's fever related. And like I said before, we we do know that other sickness symptoms come along at the same time, but we really didn't know whether they were the same circuits or different. So fever seemed like the obvious first choice. So looking for the neurons that generate fever and then trying to understand whether they are connected to other sorts of sickness behaviors was, was the main goal. And what we found was that indeed there are populations of neurons that are heavily activated during acute inflammation. This one population was really interesting because it's in the hypothalamus where we know body temperature is controlled, but it's also really close to this area of the brain called a circumventricular organ. And these are areas of the brain where there's there's several of them, but this one area in particular in the hypothalamus um, is called the OVLT. These areas are very specialized because the cells that make up the blood-brain barrier in these areas is more permeable than other places. Mm-hmm. So both the cells that line the ventricle, where you see CSF fluid come flowing in, as well as the cells lining the capillaries in that region, what people call leaky. What they really mean is that they're specialized and they will sense anything circulating in the, the blood, the CSF fluid, and allowing some things to enter, whereas other parts of the brain are a little bit more um, restricted. So these are discrete regions, and this set of neurons was really, really close by. So this is pretty intriguing for me because I thought, well, maybe this is how the immune signals are actually even getting into the brain to begin with. And so I found that those neurons then using chemogenetics and as well as specific ablation methods, so sort of a gain of function, loss of function type experiment, I found that they do indeed induce fever upon activation. And if you ablate them, they, animals no longer have a fever in response to inflammation. And then in addition to that, I also tested other sickness behaviors and found that those neurons are also connected or also modulate feeding behavior. So normally when we're sick, we have a decrease in appetite and these neurons also decrease appetite and someone activated. And in addition, they also have an effect on warp seeking behavior. So just like you and I, when we have a, when we have a fever or we feel sick, we feel cold. 
So mice also are the same, and we can measure this where they are in a long gradient of temperatures where the metal bottom is cold on one side and warm on the other, and they can will sit in the spot that's most comfortable to them. But if they're sick, they prefer a warmer temperature. They feel cold, so they move to a warmer spot. And so these neurons also control that behavior as well. We didn't find actually that they had any effect on social behavior, which is quite interesting because this means that there's a separate circuit for controlling social behavior during inflammation. How do they do this? We know that there are areas of the brain that act as set point regions for like appetite and body temperature. So I looked to see if these areas connect with neurons that I found, and it turns out that they do. So my neurons I found was connect with the warm-seeking neurons, which set body temperature as appetite-controlling neurons control the set point for feeding behavior. And so these neurons, and what it signals is that these neurons act as sort of a hub for coordinating multiple sickness behaviors at one time. But the question sort of remained there, was, which is how do they do that? What's the mechanism here? And neurons communicate with other neurons through circuits, right? So likely there are neurons that form synapses and they can excite these neurons. But again, that location really close to that circumventricular organ was particularly intriguing. And so I wanted to try to understand whether those neurons have any sort of communications with, you know, with the, the, the blood-brain barrier, maybe through secreted molecules. And so to test that, I used a combination of single cell sequencing as well as spatial transcriptomics to get a sense for what those neurons express and what sort of the spatial organization of the activated cells look like. What I found was that the neurons actually have receptors for immune signals which is not really well understood or really well known at the time. Which exact immune signals were they? Interleukin-1 beta is a cytokine that's heavily characterized, known to be heavily associated with fever. So they express one of the receptors or the co-receptors for IL-1 beta. They also express a receptor for chemokine ligand 2, which is periphery is a chemoattractant for different kinds of immune cells. And they also expressed prostaglandin E2 receptor 2. Prostaglandin E2 is another common immune signal that's throughout the body as well as in the brain, common during all kinds of inflammation. So all three receptors are expressed by these neurons. And in addition, we found that the cells that are producing these molecules are actually the ependymal cells lining the ventricle, as well as the cells lining the capillary. So these- Oh, oh because when you said immune cells, I was thinking like microglia, oh, immune um, cells, exactly. I was thinking- it might also be immune cells circulating in the blood and right. then that's going through into the brain. That's what I was thinking as well. But it, do you, um, is it, are, do they, are they playing a role or is that not yeah. playing a role? Yeah, immune cells in the blood. Yeah, so sorry, I might have misspoke there. What I meant was immune signals. The immune cells that are circulating, what they're doing is they're sensing this pathogen. So we're not injecting a pathogen, we're injecting basically ground up pathogen. Okay. So they don't have a real infection, but they certainly, the immune system is seeing those signals and having a response. And what's happening in the periphery is that all these different kinds of immune cells are recruited and then producing a bunch of different molecules that they're releasing. And the purpose is to recruit more immune signals to fight this pathogen, right? So there's a whole program that gets listed in the periphery that requires immune cells, but they don't necessarily go into the brain. Although this is a very active area of research trend, if they do, when they do, and why, because there now are different, several studies showing that perhaps actually there are immune cells infiltrating the brain. Actually, I should say that certainly there are immune cells infiltrating the brain, but when are they doing it and why? Is so uh, is the, the immune signals mainly being produced by the ependymal cells? Right, yes. Okay. So when I when I look, so using things like spatial transcriptomics or just in-situ hybridization, I, what I don't see is a bunch of immune cells. So I have markers for things like that, and I don't see them. So perhaps they don't for other sorts of maybe injury or maybe chronic inflammation, but at least in this area of the brain, I don't see them. But what I do see is that the ependymal cells and the cells that are lining the capillary, so these are just epithelial cell types, they have receptors for a lot of different immune molecules, and they're also producing them. So what's happening is that they're sensing what's uh, circulating in the CSF, circulating in the blood, and in response, producing their own, which is then secreted into the brain. And what's happening is that the microglia and astrocytes are also sensing those molecules and producing more. Like an internal amplification of them. Because remember, these are secreted molecules. They don't travel very far, very far. The microglia and the astrocytes can then move that signal further out. So that seems to be what's happening. It seems that these neurons are actually sensing immune signals that are coming from the periphery and in response, coordinating multiple sickness symptoms at one time. And have you looked into what effect this is having on the, the neurons in the specific brain region that you were looking at for fever, or is it activity or decreasing activity? 
This is an excellent question, which our reviewers also asked us. We did some electrophysiology experiments, and we showed that in SLICE physiology, where if you patch onto those, our neurons of choice here, and you add those molecules in, they do in fact increase their activity. And quite strikingly, it's really, really high. We have a electrophysiologist in the lab that studies a lot of different neurons in the hypothalamus, and he was blown away, actually. He came down the hallway, he works a few doors down from us. And he came down the hallway. He was like, this is, this is just nuts. This is like the highest activity I've ever seen, which was so exciting. I was, you know, I don't know if you've seen the electrophysiology experiments, but when you look at the raw data, it's not always obvious that there's an effect, right? But he's like, no, I could see it immediately, um, which is really, really cool. So not only do they have an effect directly on all three of them have an effect directly on the neural of our cells, but they also affect the excitatory input and inhibitory input. So they have a net altogether have a net increase in the excitability of their inputs. So the they're being activated not just by those neurons directly, but also indirectly through the synapses that are onto those cells. Anyway, so, so it was anyway, so it was quite striking. And in fact, there is an effect on the neural activity based on those experiments. And you mentioned that you look for neurons involved in fever. By fever, do you mean because fever can cause cold temperatures, but also hot temperatures? So I was wondering. Do you know which which ones these neurons are producing, or are they producing both types of behaviors? Like, is it producing, um, are they causing so the animals to feel warm or cold? So they are increasing warmth seeking behavior, which means okay. that they feel cold. So they feel cold, but their body temperature is rising, okay. similar to how people with the flu might feel. Do you think what's the purpose for that? Like, why do you think? We've got neurons that cause us to feel cold, even though we are warm. I think that the reason is important one, which is that there's two ways to increase your body temperature quickly. Obviously, metabolism does it as well. But through changing of the sort of the brown adipose tissue activation, so this is what warm-blooded animals do. In addition, the second way is behaviorally. So behavioral mechanisms for increasing body temperature are extremely effective. You know, you go climb under some blankets and you're instantly warmer. And so there's a motivation here. The difference is really important because there are animals that are, are cold-blooded and don't have brown adipose tissue, can't actually thermogenically increase their own body temperature. So mm-hmm. they only use behavioral mechanisms. So if you think about this, think about it this way, animals like, like iguanas or honeybees or grasshoppers, fish even, they also have sickness behaviors. And fever is one of, although the way that they get fever is by using behavior to increase their body temperature. So fish will move to a warmer environment. Bees, honeybees actually warm their entire hive through muscle activity that they, yeah. of their wings. They do it all together and they increase the whole temperature of the hive by a couple of degrees whenever there's a, you know, an infection. And so anyway, the behavioral mechanism is really, really critical as well. And what experiments did you do to find out whether they play a role? Was it just electrophysiology or did you do some other experiments to find out if neurons play a role in fever, form-seeking behaviours. So the key experiments to, to link the neurons to fever or to behaviours was the chemogenetic mm-hmm. experiments. In the absence of any kind of inflammation, mm-hmm. we can activate the neurons and then measure changes in body temperature, measure, measure changes in feeding behaviour or warm-seeking behaviour. And again, this is without any kind of infection, and we can artificially induce those behaviours using activation of only those neurons. And what animals were you using? Was it mice or was it rats? We were using mice. Ah. And we mice because of the genetic tools available for Do you think it would be beneficial to use any other sort of organism to fit the experiments in? Or do you think it's enough to, to show that, oh, I found it in mice, so it's quite... I think mice are a great model for trying to understand, you know, ancient circuits like these. But what I really would love to know is whether the same circuits exist in humans. And obviously we can't do any of these experiments in humans. What we can do is use data that's coming out, looking at human cells, human neurons, both in situ and single cell sequencing data based on their genetics, whether the same neurons exist in humans. That would be quite striking. And we could also look to see if those neurons, if we, based on the markers, if they exist in humans, they also express immune receptors, which ones different in humans and mice, that I think would be fascinating. Do you think you found all the the immune signals that are involved in this process? Or do you think there might be other immune signals that could be leading to the same illness behaviors? Yeah, I'm certain there are more. The way that the immune system works is through a 
lots and lots and lots of redundancy. So I, I'm certain that there are more molecules that are required. What's difficult is that they may be required in the periphery, but not in the brain or vice versa. So you can do it, use like a knockout, for example, of a different interleukin or different cytokine and, and see an effect on fever, but it might be because it's required in the periphery, but not necessarily in the brain. So that's yeah. sort of the next problem is figure out what's brain specific. And why do you think this research is important? Do you think, like, could this... Could knowing what neurons called isn't illness behavior allow us to control it by, I don't know, electrical stimulation or using some sort of chemicals? Certainly. So I think there's a huge market for, you know, alleviating sickness, sick symptoms in humans, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you just look at the, there's a whole aisle at CVS or at, mm-hmm. you know, whatever your equivalent store is, a pharmacy store where there's, you know, anti-inflammatories, pain medication, sleep aids, all of these things, right, that are helpful to people that feel sickness. But the problem is a lot of these are nonspecific. And a lot of them you can't take long term if you have some sort of chronic um, inflammation. And in addition, that a lot of times they only directed towards one one of the few ways, right? So they all affect the prostaglandin pathway, but not the interleukin one pathway. So I am certain that this work will lead to better therapies, more specifically target the particular and I think this will be really, really critical, not just for, you know, uh, something like the flu, but chronic states where actually, you know, long-term behavioral or symptomatic problems that, that patients have for a disease, it's not curable. So the disease will never go away. They will always have chronic inflammation, but they're suffering in their everyday life. And they can't, a lot of these medications, like I said, you can't take long-term. So perhaps there's something we can do for those patients by knowing what the molecules are and having some more specific therapies that target those pathways. So these maybe chemicals, maybe antibodies that target particular pathways specifically. Is this quite far in the future, you think? I I don't know. I don't know if it's so far. I don't know. I live in a place where there's more startups than there are big. I feel like I feel like you get a good idea. And I know there's already people targeting particular cytokine pathways for different things like cancer treatments. The trick is to get things through the blood brain barrier. So that there are also people working on this problem as well. That's why I was thinking because it's the blood brain barrier that is a bit more leaky. It might be easier Mm -hmm. to get stuff across. So that's why I was thinking it might be more. Well, nowadays, there's these uh, nanobodies or nanoantibodies that are quite mm-hmm. are actually capable of crossing the blood-brain barrier. And you can use antibodies that will target particular receptors or molecules to inhibit their function temporarily. So I don't really know how far along that work is, but it seems like it's not too far in the future. Do you think electrical stimulation could be used? Because I'm thinking just the hypothalamus is quite a deep structure. It's quite deep. Yeah, yeah it's so quite... it'd be quite hard to do well, surface electrical stimulation. You'd have to have an implant instead, which make it quite inaccessible in that sense. Yeah, I don't know if electrical stimulation is a good long-term solution for anything in the hypothalamus, particularly because the hypothalamus is so dense with different cell types to do yeah. such different things. It's a little different than the, the organization of the cortex, which we can sort of pinpoint what area of the cortex is involved in you know, language or hand movement, for example, right? So it's, it's a little bit different. And in, in general, any kind of surgery in the brain for implants is, I think, a, a bit further in the future. And what, what future work are you thinking of doing? Are you thinking of carrying on in this area or like looking for, like, as you mentioned earlier, further receptors, but also further cell types involved? Is there yeah. any other work you're also interested in that you're going to be working on? Yeah. So, so the goal of my lab is to try to understand how all sickness behaviors arise. Uh, And to do this, not just during acute infection, but also during chronic inflammation and other sorts of immune activated states, which I'm pretty excited about. So, you know, looking for things like how sleep is modulated. We know that although we all feel sleepy, we all feel fatigued uh, when we're sick, uh, our sleep really actually suffers. We're not getting quality sleep during an infection. There's a lot of changes in pain sensitivity. So people often complain of body aches. This is actually real. We have heightened pain sensitivity uh, during infection. And then again, fatigue is another quite interesting phenomenon that happens during both acute and inflammation. So yeah, I'm very interested in how other sickness behaviors arise. We, this is likely through other kinds of neurons, different areas of the brain. And I'll continue to use the same techniques, single cell sequencing, spatial transcriptomics, as well as circuit analysis, to try to understand how these different behaviors arise. But what I'm particularly excited about, actually, are these other immune activated states. So I keep mentioning chronic inflammation, but there's much more than this. And actually, even within the chronic inflammation umbrella, there's many kinds, you know, IBS-like models, but there's also things like cancer, for example, and chronic inflammation, as well as many, many others. And so 
there's viruses that stick around a long time. You know, there's endless sort of models here, but I'm also quite excited about pregnancy. During pregnancy, people often hear that their immune system is dampened. You know, like there, and this is important because otherwise you, you were, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I still hear this from doctors all the time, um, and not just medical doctors, but also doctors that are studying science. So, it's which is fascinating to me because what was actually happening is is not this at all. Actually, a lot of immune signals are being overly produced and what people and this is quite a large generalization but what's actually happening is that there's sort of a a switch in the types of immune systems that are activated but certainly your immune system is highly activated and think about it this way like if there was no immune system in pregnant people like wouldn't we see a lot of very sick pregnant people not happening but what, what we do know is that a lot of different immune signals are activated prostaglandins play a huge role in ongoing pregnancy and likely those signals are being circulated heavily throughout the body in addition to that we see huge change in behaviors you know and, and we can measure these really really well in in the lab looking at pregnant female mice what I'd love for people to do is find out sort of how the immune system contributes to some of those behaviors, not just during pregnancy, but during a kinds of chronic inflammation, et cetera. But the sort of main goal here is to really get a better grasp on how the immune system is communicating with the brain to alter behavior. And you mentioned earlier that you're thinking of starting your own lab. Why exactly do you think you want to start your own lab? And what are the hurdles in the process? I'm super excited. I think I'm most excited because... I get to continue to do the thing that I love to do for the more of my life. I think in science, we're often um, bogged down by the time it takes to complete a PhD, the time it takes to complete a postdoc. And a lot of times that time is you know, spent with failed experiments or bad days, but really those good days where you find the results that really change your project and change your, your career. Those I live for those days. Yeah. And I've always told people that I really love my job. And I've mm-hmm. always felt this way, both in grad school and as a postdoc. And I always told myself, if it doesn't work out, I will find an industry job and I will be fine. I will live my life. My life will continue. But I really hoped to be able to find a position where I could continue doing the work that I love to do. So I'm quite excited to be able to do that at the University of Utah. Particularly because now I get to do not just my own project, my own hands, but I can pursue multiple projects at the same time. And that's what's most exciting now is that I can, I'm, I'm free to sort of spread my wings a little bit and to work on projects that I find really exciting. And do you have people that want to join your lab already or have you already advertised places? I haven't had done a formal advertisement, but I have been talking to some folks about uh, postdocs. I, what I'm looking for really initially is going to be a technician. This is an advice I've gotten over and over again is to start with a really, really good technician. And then I hope to recruit some graduate students this year. They all start in the fall. So I'll get to introduce myself and hopefully oh, get some yeah. patient students. Yeah. You know, I have to see it's all a good fit. But yeah, so we'll, we'll be actively recruiting, certainly. Okay. What are the questions you want to ask? Yeah, this is a, this is a really good question, and what I want to be able to do, I have a lot of them. Is the problem? Yeah. So what I want people to do is is give people some choices, the direction that people are most excited about. Because let's be honest, you're not going to want to come to lab every day if you're not excited about your project. Like I said, I'm very very interested in this pregnancy aspect. I'm very interested in the sex differences and sickness behaviors, but I also really want to understand things like pain sensitivity and changes in sleep or fatigue. So these are sort of the main projects we'll go after first, and they'll involve things like cell type identification, circuit analysis. Those are the sort of the main things. But again, I like to give people sort of a, a choice. Yeah, I think that's the best. That's the best option because then they can choose the one that they because they'll come to your lab because they're interested in the general area. But when they've got a choice of all this four different questions to ask them they think yeah. which one which do I want to look into pregnancy or more into fever more into this yeah it, it, it makes them when you choose the area you're interested in you're more excited with the work oh I 100% agree I think this is really really important. what advice would you offer to students who want to enter into this field so someone who's maybe just completed the kind of college or and is choosing a university degree or someone that is going from university to either I'm like still thinking, do I want to get a job or do a PhD? Like, what would you give them to enter into neuros, yeah. but also this field? Yeah. The motivation is different for everyone, but I think a lot of people are afraid of doing a PhD or pursuing an academic career because they're really worried about giving their life up for it. I don't know if you have the same sort of cultural thing there, but here people often think that they have to work, you know, 12 hour days and yeah. they have to give up their lives. And I'll tell you, I joined graduate school at 22 and I had just moved to a big city for the first time. I was not going to not live my life. You know, that's how I always felt. And I always 
work reasonable hours. And this is a lot given that I worked in development as a graduate student, which means you kind of have to be there when the mice are ready. But I minimized my time on the weekends. I minimized my time in the evening, but got a lot of work done during the daytime. So, you know, sort of a nine to six type of schedule where every minute of my day was scheduled and I was there to work, not to socialize. And I just got it all done. I was just very organized. I was yeah. a very organized person. And I've continued to do that as a postdoc. And I say, I probably worked a little bit longer uh, certain days of the postdoc, but this is kind of because I was excited to do it. You know, it was was never because I had to. And I think that that's something that everyone needs to keep in mind, no matter what kind of pressures they're getting from their peers or their PIs, results talk and talks like that's what matters actually the most. So I didn't give up my life. I lived my life to the fullest. As a postdoc, I had family. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think women worry about in particular is that, you know, how do you balance that? How do you take a maternity leave? And it's completely doable. I have particular tips and tricks for that topic, but certainly it's all very doable. And I think there should be no fear of the repercussions because honestly, graduate school and postdoc is really, really fun time. You have you set your own schedule. You have the flexibility to live live life. You know, you go on vacations. You very different lifestyle that's a lot, I think, more forgiving than a general desk nine to five type job. Yeah. You're making me sound excited because I'm hoping to be starting a PhD soon. So, oh, that, congratulations! That's interested. So that's like I've asked a lot of PhD students about like the life of it and how it works, and it's, it's mixed. They always say it's like it's mainly down to scheduling. Like if you yeah. schedule well, then you're able to get like you're able to do the stuff you need to do and want to do as well in the time frame. If you don't, then it's like you're just rushing yeah. about everywhere. Yeah, I think another thing that you learn. Hopefully through graduate school, but definitely should have learned it as a postdoc is what experiments are worth doing because you may be very interested in many things, but the sooner you can focus on a particular project instead of experiments, the better. And the best trick I've learned to do this is to write fellowships. So when you write a fellowship for graduate school or a postdoc, you have to organize all of your thoughts. You have to look in the literature, you have to read, you have to really describe and pick the experiments you're going to do. And then you use this as an outline. And you continue to do those experiments exactly until you find a result that doesn't agree. And then you can kind of go in a different direction. But the problem I often see, and these are often the people that are in lab for, you know, 12 hour days, they don't have a very clear direction of what they're doing or why. And they just do many. And this is like, you know, it's, it's sometimes I feel like maybe it's just part of graduate school, but other times I feel that maybe they're just not getting enough direction and not learning the focus because no one's really helping them to do that. And sometimes this happens in labs. So anyway, writing postdoc or graduate student fellowships, even if your word, you may not get it, it's just a really good exercise and it'll help keep you focused, help your schedule look lighter than it might've been otherwise. And this doesn't mean don't pursue things that you're curious in. It just means be selective. I'll keep that in mind when I'm hopefully starting, I'll, I'll do a overview type thing. And now going apart from science, what else do you do in your free time? Yeah, it's funny because early in my postdoc is a little bit different than now, now that I have a, my son who's about two and a half now. And so mm-hmm. now my life is, you know, uh-huh. going to this park or that park. Mm-hmm. We live the park life now. So I really enjoy reading. I really enjoy, uh, I read fantasy and sci-fi novels. I also have dogs that we love to go to the dog park. I'm, also, I'm from Oregon originally, which is, you know, the west side of the United States, with lots okay. of mountains and forests. And so I grew up camping and hanging. And so I really enjoy doing those things as well. That's the best way. Well, I found walking is the best way to kind of digest yeah. the information that you've Oh, 100% agree. My 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 commute to lab is a 25 minute walk. Perfect. It is the yeah. best time of my day. I'm either listening to an audiobook or listening to some music and thinking about my day, about you know on the way home how my day went. I agree. Walking is a really good exercise in general. To, me time is very important. You know, yeah. my me time comes from my walks. And regarding the books you're reading, what do you have any particular favorites? Oh gosh, like top three, I would say, because that's normally easier. Oh, it's so hard. Um, I was reading. So Brandon Sanderson is a famous fantasy yep. author. So so he has several series that I was just uh, finishing reading. And so I'm really excited about those. Gosh, I'm blanking now that you're asking me on the spot. There's so many. There's just too many. Are there any other kind of authors that jump to mind? It doesn't have to be a particular um, book. I think Brandon Sanderson's my favorite. Hold on. Let me. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've read Lord of the Rings. It's different. Oh, yeah. I love Lord of the yeah. Rings. Like, yeah, I read that my summer before starting grad school. I got there like a month early and just like had the whole trilogy in like one book. And I just okay. read the whole thing. It was just nice. so good. Yeah, this is a classic. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, Another yeah. one you might have heard of is, um, have you heard of a writer called Ursula Le Guin? 
I don't know. I don't She's know written often. like fantasy and science fiction. So that's why I was thinking that's an author you might okay. Her most famous books is like one called The Earthsea Quartet. Wait, what is it called? Earthsea Quartet. I think that's the one. Yeah, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I love those books. That's that's yeah. like, to me, that's quite similar to Lord of the Rings in a way. Yes, yes. Yeah, I don't have it in my library. I'm like looking for what I have in here. But okay. I think I read those physically, not not on the once I had a kid, there was just no way I could physically read because, you know, you read at night and it's like I'm instantly asleep. Yeah. Um, so I had to switch to audiobooks, which I don't regret at all. It's a little bit different. But if you get a really good narrator, it changes the whole book. So I do a lot of that in my free time. I like to be outdoors. Um, like I said, I just like to enjoy personal time in a balanced way. And so, you know, I have a lot of friends and things like that as well. Nice. I always <laughs> ask this question because I find it's important to, for people just to know that. scientists have a life summary this paper is a great finding so it'll be useful to cover the facts again the brain region that is involved in fever and illness was found to be present in the hypothalamus which is a region of the brain involved in many activities such as temperature control hunger thirst and much more the region of the brain is called the ventral medial preoptic area. The experiments used chemogenetics to understand the neurons that were causing the fever behaviour. Chemogenetics allows for us to produce specific neurons that only activate a specific gene when that specific chemical is present, therefore allowing for the effects of the specific gene to be understood. It is incredibly useful as the gene expression can be controlled quite easily as the compound can just be added to the food of the individual. Dr Jessica and the other scientists involved also did electrophysiology which is where you look at the electrical activity of neurons and the activity of these neurons was shown to be highly increased. These neurons were also shown to be affected by immune signals that were leading to a feedback loop. This is because the immune signals would cause the epidermal cells, so cells that line the areas of the hypothalamus, to produce the signal again, and that would lead to these cells producing the signal again. But then this signal being released would also go to the neurons and cause their activity to increase. The immune signals that were causing this effect are ones such as interleukin-1-beta and prostaglandin. Dr Jessica thinks that there are immune signals that have not been discovered and will most likely have many effects. I agree with her as she mentioned the immune system and most systems within our body, for that matter, have redundancy. It makes sense, especially because These systems are really important, so you want them to carry on working. All these experiments were done in mice because they are very similar to humans and it would be interesting to find where humans or if humans have the same system. I would also be interested in finding out whether this system is important. But most interestingly was the fact that this research could eventually control illness and fever Imagine if one day you could fight infections without suffering any of the nasty side effects. I also enjoyed her advice on scheduling for a PhD, which will be incredibly useful for me, as I will be starting a PhD soon, and it is always helpful to get advice from people who have been in this boat before. I also liked talking to someone who enjoys fantasy and science fiction books like I do, and I recommended Earthsea Quartet, which is a book that I would highly recommend. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something new and be sure to check out the paper, which I've linked in the description. Also, check out the website for Brain Explained, where there'll be the rest of the episodes and there's also a blog where we will be publishing blog posts about recent neuroscience. I'm also looking for anyone who'd be interested in contributing towards the blog. This would involve just writing blog posts about neuroscience research that's recently come out in the past week or two it's a totally voluntary position but it'd be great for you to keep up to date on neuroscience and 
also to improve your science communication skills. If this is something that interests you, I would be delighted to hear from you. And please contact me by the Twitter account or by the email address, which is brainexplained at outlook.com.